0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. My parents and I were involved in an automobile accident when I was three years old. It's the first memory I have, actually. I ended up in the surgical suite of a local hospital, and I was about to undergo surgery, and I was very frightened. I was confused. You can imagine a three-year-old having such an event, being hit as a pedestrian by a man who ran a red light under the influence of alcohol. And I was wanting my daddy. I, I, I was crying. I do remember this part, frankly. I cried out, I want my daddy, I want my daddy, and in an effort to calm me down, I don't know if it was a physician or an assistant of some sort, a nurse, a male, I know that for sure, and he said, masked up, I might add, he said, I'm your daddy. I said, you're not my daddy. (laughs) I want my daddy, and finally, whoever was in charge of that procedure, relented and my father was asked to come in. As soon as he came in, no mask, I saw his face, I heard his voice, and I was fine from that point forward. We have a father who is so superior to my father on earth and your father on earth, there's no comparison. And he understands when we have needs, When we cry out to Him, He hears us as His children. And He comes to us. In fact, I'll go on record as saying today, He's listening to the cry of your heart. And He wants to come to you. And in some cases, there are people here today who may think that He's his or her Father, but He's not yet. But before this day is over, you will have had the opportunity to understand just what kind of Father He is and how He is waiting on you to call upon Him. The Word of God says, Call on the Lord while He may be found. Seek Him while He is near. This is our God. and He's interested in us. Jesus... Emphasize the fatherhood of God in a way that it had never been emphasized by any rabbi or any teacher. In the Old Testament, we get bits and pieces, glimpses of God as Father. For instance, in Psalm 103, the Bible says, As a father pities his son, so God the Lord pities us. We get another glimpse of it in Isaiah 63, where twice in the 16th verse, the Scripture says, O Lord God, You are our Father, twice. But the references are slight. They're rather small compared to other references to God. In the Old Testament, we're introduced to Him as Creator. We're the creatures. Creatures created in his image, I might add. Also, we see him as some grand sovereign master. He's depicted as a potter and we as the clay. He's molding us into the people that he would have us to be to fulfill our intended purpose. These are accurate perceptions and descriptions of who God is. But it's not until Jesus came that we really began to know him. Potentially as Father. Jesus is the one we know who gives us a clear picture of who the Father is. Let's eavesdrop for a moment on a conversation that Jesus was having with his apostles near the end of his life. And one of his apostles, Philip, Philip was a little slow on the uptake, but he always arrived at the right place. He said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And then I can see Jesus in my mind's eye. I don't know He actually did this, but I can see Him just sort of shaking His head to say, Have I been so long with you, Philip, and you still do not know me? If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus brought us a real-life picture of the Father, And he refers over 150 times in the Gospels to God as Father. Our God wants to be our Father. The meaning of God as Father according to Jesus is important. We're going to spend some moments thinking about how Jesus opened the window of our hearts and our minds so we can see who God as father is. The first thing I would re- refer to is that since God is our father, he is vitally interested in our needs as his children. Think about this for a moment. Jesus says in Matthew 7:11, he says to us men who are fathers, if you being evil know how to give your children good gifts, how much more Does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to you? The finest man in this room who is a father, we know he cares for his children, but he doesn't come close, even close. He's not even the same universe with God the Father in his love for us. James says in his writing that every good thing we receive every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Our Father is the one who creates the good things and the perfect things, and He's the one who willingly and joyfully distributes those perfect gifts. The most perfect of which, of course, is our salvation. We've been saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, the Father. The gift of his son, we read about it, did we not? In the most famous piece of scripture for the Christian church, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, fast asleep in the bottom of the boat, His apostles, 12 of them, many of them, almost half of them at least, were fishermen. They knew that body of water like the back of their hand. They had grown up on the shores and on the surface of that Sea of Galilee. They had fished it, but they were in a storm they had never experienced in their lives. They did everything they knew to do to save the ship and save their lives. And when they were out of all their resources, they came and rather frustratedly, I believe there would be implication, if not direct description of that in Mark's account, they woke him. And this is what they said. These may not be the exact words, but this is what they meant. Don't you care that we're about to go down and we're all going to die in this Sea of Galilee? Maybe you're here today and you have cried out rather frustratedly, if not angrily, at God, don't you care, God? Well, be sure he cares. He cares about every concern you have. He's waiting for you to submit to him and understand what Jesus understood. The reason Jesus could be so calm in the picture of peace was because he knew what is written in the book of Deuteronomy underneath are the everlasting arms. I'll never forget reading something written by a German naval officer in World War II. There's a tendency for us to believe that all of our enemies are just out-and-out heathen pagans. But among the naval officers in the Navy of the Third Reich, was a man named Gerhard Fock, And this captain of the ship would correspond with his wife, and she cherished every letter which she received, but none more than the one I'm going to quote from. When she said, My dear, if you should hear that our cruiser sunk and none survived, then do not weep, for the sea in which my body would have sunk is nothing but the hollow of my Savior's hand. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any other created thing can separate us who are children of God, from the love of God. Our God loves us. The Apostle Peter, who had been in that boat with Jesus, he may have been the one who got on Jesus the hardest, we don't know. But if we were to fast forward a few years, we don't know exactly how many, probably two or three years, we would find him fast asleep in a jail in Jerusalem. He was in line According to what had happened before him to be beheaded. But he's sound asleep. He's so asleep that the angel came and entered the cell and his presence brightened that cell up like midday and Peter didn't even budge. He had to shake him to get him up, to get him out of jail. Why? Peter had been so frantic on that moment in the Sea of Galilee. Here's why I think. He had watched Jesus and he'd seen the composure that Jesus had in that moment of great extremity. And he had watched and he had heard what Jesus said when Jesus reprimanded his apostles, when he said, O ye of little faith. Jesus was the picture of one who is dependent upon the Father and therefore is independent of letting the circumstances of life dictate the terms of that life. We have more than an example, though. That would be enough for some. But reality tells us, the Word of God tells us, that that same Jesus if we know him, he lives in us. And the faith that we now live in this life, we live by the faith of Christ in us. We learn to trust Jesus. And therefore, it's not to say that we're bulletproof in terms of feeling things and maybe having momentary sense of desperation. But when we gather our senses and we go to what we know about Him and we trust Him, the result is that we have that peace. It's His peace. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. We have that peace of Christ in us. Since God is our Father, according to Jesus, He is vitally interested in our needs and our concerns, but also He knows and loves each one of us by name. We sang that song how the Lord knows our names. He sees every tear that falls. I take comfort in that. The Bible says He gathers our tears in a bottle. Now I don't know if that's a figure of speech. It very well could be. But I wonder if in heaven there are going to be as many bottles there as there are people and there'll be tears. And we'll see what He promised. He made good on. He cares about you and me immensely. He cares. We can't imagine how much he cares about every one of us. He knows and loves each one individually. This morning I took a shower. I'm glad I did, and you would be too if you got close to me. <laughs> and every morning I take a shower. Undoubtedly, I mean, I, I lose some hairs And I'm thinking about not taking another shower the rest of my life. (laughs) But we know what Jesus says. The Father knows the number of hairs on my head and yours too. What does that tell us about His interest in you and me? He cares about us incredibly. He knows our name. Jesus says that, doesn't He? He says... I'm the shepherd of the sheep, and the shepherd knows the names of his sheep. What a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful Father we have. Remember when Jesus was going at the strong urging of a man named Jairus, who is a synagogue ruler? He had one little girl, Telethakum, is the way Jesus referred to this child. She was dying. He said, would you please come, Master? Would you please come and heal my daughter? And Jesus succumbed to that invitation. As he went, he was thronged by people. Some of you are golf fans. And you watched the PGA probably three weeks ago. And it was a marvelous story of a 50, I don't know if he's 50, 51, Phil Mickelson winning that prestigious tournament. And on the 18th hole, I would never seen anything like it. How literally thousands of people, and they were out of control. I thought they were gonna have a mob and people were gonna get hurt. In fact, the partner, Brooks Kepka, complained of his knee being hurt because of people just crushed, people get hurt and sometimes killed in those kind of crowds. That was the kind of picture I have in my mind of this story recounted in Mark 5. And Jesus turns to one of his apostles who were probably circling him like a bodyguard around him. And he said, who touched me? And one of the apostles says, Lord, look at this crowd. How in the world do we know who touched you? There's so many people crowding you. And then all of a sudden, a woman who had thought, if I can just touch his garment, just the hem of his garment that maybe I'll be healed of this hemorrhage which I've suffered from for 12 years. Can you imagine women hemorrhaging for 12 years? And women in our culture don't understand this, what the impact that was on this woman. She couldn't go to temple. She could not go to synagogue. Any person who touched her or anyone who touched something that she wore or where she had sat, that person would be an outcast for a period of time too. She had spent, the Bible says, all the money she had. She evidently was a woman of means, but she spent her last penny, and no doctor could help her with what ailed her. And as a last-ditch effort, she found Jesus, and she just quietly and inconspicuously squeezed her way in and just touched the hem of His garment. And Jesus said, I know power came out of me. Jesus is interested in the individual. This is amazing. When we think of the other world religions, Islam, which which means submission, when we think of Islam, Allah is an indifferent God. He doesn't give a hoot about anybody because He is the deity with no personal involvement. Hindus have 30 million gods. Which one do you pick out? None of them is like our God, the one true God. Buddhism doesn't even have a God. Go on and on. We who know Jesus, we have the true God. And we get a picture of what he's like. He's our Father and he loves us unconditionally as his children. St. Augustine said in this regard about God the Father, he loves us, everyone as though there was but one of us to love. Do you have anybody in your life like that? When you're in the presence of that person, you believe you and that person, the only two in the room, and you believe, I believe she, I believe he loves me and me more than anybody else. Jesus loves us that way, and God the Father loves us that way. I remember reading a letter, part of it at least. It was written by Napoleon, the world conqueror, emperor of, of course, France, but of much vaster domain. He wrote a letter to his wife while he was on campaign. He didn't talk one thing about his exploits or his fears or his personal concerns, the whole letter was devoted to asking his wife, how's our little boy? He wanted to know everything about the son. Why? Because he was his child and he loved him. He cared about him. Men, we should care about our children like that. We should treat each one of our children as an individual, not collectively. We should study our children and find a way that we can best relate to them, not just give them a tip of the hat, but really spend some time in prayer and say, Lord, show me how I can be such a father to my children. But even if your child has the best father in El Paso, he still or she still needs the heavenly father because he's the only one who will never fail them. And when you're gone, where do they turn? Here's the third thing we learn from Jesus about God's fatherhood. We can approach him without being unnecessarily self conscious. Jesus says, Let the little children come to me. Unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I love children. Do you love little children? Some of you don't, and you don't have to confess it here publicly, but I know you don't. (laughs) I love little children, they're so transparent. Sometimes it takes a while for them to warm up to us if we're not their father or their grandfather or uncle. But they'll they'll let you in pretty easily. Most children will. And what I love about Jesus, He loved children. Now the thing about Jesus that would be different about me and you, as good as we think we might be men with children, is that I don't think any child was afraid of Jesus. I don't think anyone. He didn't have to work at demonstrating his love and getting some back. They loved him, right? But Jesus, when we come to Jesus, we come to him humbly, yeah. And that's one of the aspects of a child. A little child, I don't know, they cross that line pretty quickly in some cases, but a little child really is not proud. They're expectant. They are people who trust their parents. We need to give them someone they can trust safely, man. We need to be that kind of dad. But nevertheless, what we know is that we're not to be formalists in our relationship to God. And what I mean by that is Jesus says, and I could quote several things. I'm only going to mention one verse which captures the idea. Matthew 6, 5 in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus says these words. He says, don't be like the scribes and Pharisees, those hypocrites who love to stand up in the synagogue and pray aloud, and they love to go to the street corners and pray, all the while doing that to draw attention to themselves. Wow. We know that the Lord wants us to be real in our relationship with Him. Many of you are old enough to remember when John Kennedy was president. And I remember as a boy, and it's still in my mind, it'll never go away. When I was preparing this message, it came to my mind just like that. Of the president, the most powerful man in the world, sitting behind this desk in the Oval Office, tending to business, and John John, remember? Where was John John? He was underneath the desk, playing around his father's feet. Did that bother the president at all? I doubt it, I think it delighted him to have his child in his presence. Another president, Abraham Lincoln, son Tad, he was known to barge in, just burst in unannounced. He was told that he could do that and those who guarded the doors were always understanding if Tad shows up, let him in, don't stop him, no matter who the president is speaking to. And he did that and his father always stopped, said, what may I do for you, son? Why? Because that boy knew he was secure in the love of God. Third thing then, we can approach him without being self-conscious. Here's the fourth thing we learn from Jesus' picture of the father. That when we are in pain, he suffers too. God does discipline us. And sometimes it's harsh. We don't understand it. Why did you let that happen to me, Father? He has a reason. We need to always remember this. Please store this in your memory. In the book of Isaiah, the Bible says, the Lord knows the end from the beginning. We only have so much history right to this day, right now, this Father's Day, June the 19th, 2021. We only have this much time of our lives. And some of us have had a real rough ride. Some of you are in the pits today and you wonder, where are you, God? But look, He knows the end from the beginning and He does cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I could testify about an hour about that at least in my life but God knows and he is a loving father. Don't let the devil bait you into accusing God for your problems. Don't let him do it. He's a liar. He masquerades as an angel of light. Of course, I'm talking about the devil for sure. So we need to understand that this God who did not spare his own son this God does love us and at times loves us enough to discipline us. And we're proud of it after we get past the initial shock and we get perspective on it. We gratefully say, thank you, Father. What hurts us hurts our Father God. Isaiah 63.9 says, when we are afflicted as His children, He also is afflicted. This is our God. I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about the extent of God's fatherhood. It's not universal. Now listen very carefully. You've been great listeners today. Listen even more carefully here. Not everybody who is born is a child of God. That's what I'm trying to say. You say, where do you get that idea, Mike? I get it from the Word of God, not from popular theology or popular thinking. It's in the Word of God. Listen to what the Bible says about Jesus. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people, the nation of Israel. He came to the descendants of Abraham. He came to his own, and they did not know him. Some of them did. We know that. But as a rule, they rejected him. And among those who were his own were his own brothers, his own sisters. He had at least six siblings. Look at it in the book of Matthew chapter 12. You can figure it out. But nevertheless, they rejected him. Jesus says that he is available to those who receive Him. In John 1.12, that same section I was just mentioning, the Bible says, "...but as many as received Him," that would be Jesus, "...to them He," that would be Jesus, "...gives eternal life to those who believe in His name." Real faith is not simply intellectual assent. There's probably not a person in the room today who would say, I don't believe in Jesus, that He was an historical figure. You might say, I believe He died on the cross for my sin. You might believe I say, I believe He was raised from the dead. But there's still another step which must be taken. You have to receive Him. And the word translated receive was a word that everyone who read it in the Greek world of Christ would have understood it. It means to, with arms wide open, Greet someone and bring them into your life, into your home. Trust is the idea. Until we trust in the Lord, we will not know God as Father. The next verse, John 1.13 says this. Those who are born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. We read from John 3, the conversation that Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, had with Jesus after Jesus heard him say, you we know that you're someone who's come from God. God had to send you because of the signs, the miracles you're doing. And then Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, Unless a man is born from above, he will not see the kingdom of God. What did he mean? Born again is what he said. That's the way we hear it. And what did Nicodemus say? He said, a man cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? He asked a logical question and Jesus reiterated what he had said. What does it mean to be born again? It means to be born of God. Literally, the word, again, translated literally from the original language means from above, from above. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, and then what happens, miracle of miracles, God reveals himself to us, and we respond by receiving Christ into our lives, submitting ourselves to him, not simply as our Savior, I am so grateful, and I know you are too, that we have such a Savior. But we have to receive Him as our Lord, our our sovereign, our King, and submit to Him in that regard. So, it's not a given that if you're a human being, you're a child of God. What has to happen? You have to receive Him, you have to trust Him, you have to submit to Him as your Lord. When Paul was asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved, what did he say? Believe, and notice the order of the name, the Lord, that sovereign and king, Jesus, that savior, Christ, Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. The extent of God's fatherhood is not universal. It is irreversible. Once we receive Christ, this is so lovely, Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. The phrase they shall never perish, literally this is what it says. It says they shall not never perish. A double negative in English, it would be unacceptable. That's why our English translations and Spanish translations do not translate those two little words, two negatives put side by side that literally translated into English, not never, or to Spanish, not never. It was the strongest possible way that a writer or speaker of the Greek language could state something negatively. So Jesus had already said something similar to this. He says, all that the Father gives to me, that would be us, were gifts to the Father, from the Father rather, to Jesus, for Jesus' work on our behalf, And neither Jesus nor the Father is going to do away with you and me. Isn't that good? Listen. The fatherhood of God, once enacted, is irreversible. It's not going to be undone. Because we are in the hand of Jesus, is what Jesus says. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then for good measure, Jesus says... And you are also in the hand of the Father. And no one can take us out of the hand of the Father because I am the Father of one. Look, hand of Jesus, ultimate safety. Also, hand of the Father, enveloping the hand of Jesus. Perfect, perfect security. And it's based on the sovereignty of God in our lives that we call upon Him as our Lord and we yield to Him as our Lord. In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says this wonderful thing. He says, There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 unrepentant righteous people. Now for years... In fact, it was not until I was preparing this message, I'm almost embarrassed to mention it, say it, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. For all those years, I had heard people say, well, the angels are throwing a party in heaven when a person is saved. and I I can't dispute that. It wouldn't surprise me at all. But I think the main celebrant is God the Father himself. Why would I say that? We have many fathers here today and many mothers And think about your first child. Can you think about the birth of your first child for a moment? Was there a celebration in your heart, dads, when your wife gave birth? Was it a great moment? It was awesome, wasn't it? Well, if we as humans have that kind of response, don't you think God the Father has a similar response when you were born again and born from above? He's not going to throw you away. Once you know him, he'll discipline you when you get out of line because he's a good, perfect father. My children, as I've told you before, were not natural born by my wife, not a product of our relationship. They were adopted. We took custody of them when they were both five weeks old. Both of them, five weeks old. They had been fostered by the same parents. That's interesting. They had different names. My son's name was Wally, and my daughter's name was Angel. So we had our own names picked out. We gave them a new name. I don't know if they could tell what their name I mean, I'm going to talk to them about it today and say, do you know? I'm going to say, hey, Wally, how's it doing? Are those steaks ready yet, bro? I'm on my way. But what we know is that the Bible says, in love, God predestined us as His children to be adopted in His family. In the Roman law, the law that prevailed in the world into which Jesus was born and beyond, do you know that according to Roman law, a parent, a father could disown legally, disown a natural born child, but could not disown an adopted child. What does that tell you? Do you know that's no accident, is it? This word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The adoption metaphor is a picture. God's not going to dismiss you. He loves you. Let me finish by asking you a question today. You who are here. There's somebody in this room, I would imagine, who has come to the realization that you don't know God as Father. How can you get from where you are to knowing Him as your Father and be loved by Him the way in which the Bible says God loves those who are His children? Well, it's to acknowledge to the Lord, Lord, I don't know you. And to say to the Lord, Lord, would you res- would you let me come in to your family? And he's been so excited for this moment in your life. He's looked forward to it. He has appointed this time for you to know him today. Would you bow your head? If you've never received Christ, if you've never asked Christ to forgive you of your sin, stop and do that now. If you've never thanked Jesus, For dying for your sin. Taking your punishment for you. Just thank Him right now. If you've never opened the door of your heart to Jesus, just say to the Lord, Lord, I don't deserve you to come into my life and help me to become a child of God, but Lord, I ask you to right now. Would you please, Lord? If you prayed that prayer today, he heard that prayer. And Jesus has come in. And you have become a child of God, the Father. Thank you, Father, for being with us today. Thank you for giving us you to celebrate. And we pray as fathers, Lord, you'd empower each one of us to be like you in the way we relate to our children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.